Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast, a part of JewishCoffeehouse.com, the show on where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Before we start, I'd like to read you this little blurb. Listening to the newest episode with Gavura. But that aside, something I've heard quite a few times throughout episodes is about the whole in-town, out-of-town situation. It's interesting to learn about. Although I'm from out-of-town myself, all these issues, Sem, Shaduchim, and whatnot, wasn't really a thought for us. In Chabad, it's not as big of a deal, I guess. We're all over anyway. It's good to know about what happens in other crowds. So I've gotten messages like these several times as feedback after some of the podcasts, after some of the episodes we did. And it pushed me to do an episode on specifically the cultural differences between Chabad and other Jewish communities. I'd be super interested to take this further and discuss other cultural differences. For example, the materialism outlook in Hasidic communities versus non-Hasidic Haredi communities. And if anyone would like to guest on that episode, please do reach out. Some other topics I'd like to address are topics we've already done, but from the male perspective. As I know, we have lots of men listening to this podcast. Please do reach out and volunteer. Yes, you can be anonymous, even though I prefer you not to be. But for more sensitive issues, of course, we do provide this platform for you anonymously. But the idea is men have their perspective and their experience through so many of the issues that we've discussed already that women either deal with firsthand or have more challenges around. It would be interesting to hear what the male perspective is when living through those challenges. So I'm leaving this up to you and please do reach out with any ideas or suggestions. I want to urge you to go listen to some other jewishcoffeehouse.com podcasts like Intimate Judaism, Chochmat Nashim, Let My People Eat, and Orthodox Conundrum. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will probably enjoy the other podcasts as well. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please do reach out. And in case you have joined the WhatsApp group and left, I want you to know some of the conversations and inspirations for new topics happen on the group, as well as sometimes I put up an episode for a vote for you to decide which episode should be next. So feel free to join. I'd love to continue the discussion there. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. Here we go. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, Fans Dance. Today, I'm so excited for this episode because this episode was inspired by the audience, by our listeners. And I'm cautiously excited to do this. Let me introduce the topic to you. Let's talk about the cultural differences between Chabad and all other categories or sects in Orthodox Judaism. And I find it a more relevant topic to discuss because there are so many nuances that are just missed between communities. And at the same time, Chabad seems to represent Orthodox Judaism to the outside world in many ways. So for this topic today, we had lots of votes for this guest, Dina Schusterman. Welcome to the show from Atlanta, Georgia. Shlucha. Thank you. I didn't know I was voted. That's very exciting. Thank you. Well, I posted on Facebook and people definitely suggested your name and some people sent me private messages 
sending me extra votes toward your name because many names were listed. That's nice to hear. Okay. So when this topic was approached or brought up, what what were the first things that came to mind for you that made you want to volunteer for a conversation like this? Okay. So I saw your post on Facebook and you were asking if anybody knew both worlds. And I grew up as a Lubavitcher. I grew up on Schlichus. I grew up in Northern California, Southern California, Albuquerque, New Mexico in between. And then I went to school from seventh grade until graduating high school in like a really mainstream. I went to Tarsenas in LA and then I went to Basiakov in LA. So as a Lubavitcher, I was immersed in that world. And many Lubavitchers who I grew up with left that world, left their high school. There were many Lubavitchers with me, but I'm actually still in touch with many of my Basiakov friends. And I speak to my friends in Lakewood and in LA. And I feel like I, um, I'm, I've always been curious about the differences and I knew how it felt to be different. And um, this was intriguing to me. Okay, great. So let's dive in and go through all the different things that may be different. And what would you say the first thing that you noticed that made you feel different when you entered mainstream non-Chabad from institutions and community? Okay, so first I want to say is that I'm only speaking for myself. I'm not speaking to any Lubavitchers, so don't feel the need to call me, text me, email me that that wasn't your experience because this is totally my experience. And, I, you know, we're not a monolith. Everybody doesn't have my experience. Just like we don't want the outside world painting all Yiddin as one way, Lubavitchers definitely don't want to be seen as my story. I came from Cheder. And I had come from a Shlichus day school. And then I went for two years to Cheder in L.A., for three years. And then I came to Tars MS. And the first thing that was immediately recognizable to me was that the, the structure. Chabad was run very haphazardly. It was very Hamish. It was much poorer. The Litvish world was much more structured, had much more money. Those were very stark differences. The kids dressed better. They had the nicer homes. It was a much more established community in Los Angeles. I'm not saying everybody had money who wasn't Lubavitch. And I don't think many Lubavitchers had any money at that point. And it was much more comfortable for me because I came from an extremely Balbatish home. You know, my mother, whether we had money or not, my mother dressed me, you know, to the nines. And it was like a smooth, that was very appealing to me on a very, very surface level. So then I got to, you know, I was very much introduced, like, you know, probably in the secular world, this is like my, my that friend, my this friend, my, my Japanese friend, my Asian friend, everyone has a token friend. I was like, Chabad. Here, Ma, you want to meet my friend, Dina? She's Chabad. And, you know, so I was very much the token Chabad person. Um, LA was still a small community, and I think there was a lot of cohesiveness. So I didn't feel any other ring in it, like a, on a human level, but there was this real focus on Torah and, and Kolel and all of these ideals that were very different than my, what I was raised with. And it was very, it was a big struggle because all of us know that Talmud Torah, Keneged Kulam and sitting and learning all day is the highest priority that Hashem wants. But I had already, I was born into Shlicha. So I already saw that this is what the Rebbe wanted. And I, it was part of my essence. So I, I never questioned the Rebbe, but there was 
like in any early religion, not that Chabad is its own religion, but in any early movement, there's a little bit of insecurity there. I definitely felt a judgment and I couldn't. Today, we take it so for granted, the Rebbe's vision, but it was much way earlier then. And it was very much looked askance, like you're not going to marry someone who studies in Kola. Like this is the essence of Yiddishkeit. And our from levels were exactly the same, you know, so we kept kosher the same. We kept Shabbos the same. I did keep Chal Vistral. Most of my, well, many of my friends actually did. I had some really yeshivish friends and they did keep Chal Vistral. But like our hashkafas were very similar. You know, Tznias was the same. Like we had the same value system, except when it came to these things like accepting other Jews, obviously Sral, judgment, those were, real stark differences for me. And I couldn't necessarily put my finger on it. And I was probably educated suddenly in like this more um, fear-based education where I hadn't come from that. So for example, in Lubavitch, if something happened in the world, the Rebbe's response would be, we need to do more mitzvahs. We need to add light. We need to shine a light in this world. And in, as we see, even today, when tragedy strikes, you have all different types of religious orthodox leaders who will say it's because this one's doing that or maybe that one's doing that and we need to get stricter here and that was very if anything maybe the rebbe would have taken responsibility like i didn't stress enough you know when mashiach didn't come the rebbe took responsibility on his shoulders like i or actually the rebbe said i did my part you do your part but the rebbe took very much personal responsibility as opposed to this concept of throwing bad things happen to you because you did not measure up, which is, we didn't hear that message in my home. It was very jarring to hear that, but it affects you because you do, you start wondering. And I had to kind of, when I left that system, I had to sort of decompress from that kind of messaging. I'm curious how this messaging does impact people who are in Shivish communities, because what I'm hearing, it's not super positive. So, I mean, you, you might've grown up with it, but it's, it's very much fear-based. Maybe I could back up a little bit and, and talk about a little bit about like where I come from. So I grew up on Shluchas in Berkeley, California in the late seventies. And that is just an environment that is so completely different than anything a from person even today would expect to grow up in. Okay. So just being in that environment, just accepting that this is your shlichus, literally, this is what your life's mission is. It is, it is eye-opening. It is, it, it changes your brain in a certain way. You know, I think that when I think about the Rebbe, I don't know if even we appreciate it today because if if you go back to the 80s and the 90s, today everybody accepts Lubavitchers and is mainstream. Lubavitch was very not mainstream when I was in both worlds. Like we were like other, you know, it was a little bit weird. Like we'll accept you because you're cute and you know um, you dress well. I don't know. I'm saying like I was really the token accepted Lubavitcher in amongst. There were a few of us. We were accepted, but there were constantly a lot of balichuva amongst Lubavitchers. That was very hard for the other Jewish world to accept that we just, they were amongst us. They were, they were our friends and we sojourned along them with their naot, with their sandals and their socks. And that was fine for us, you know? So Lubavitchers really early on took, because the Rebbe, I don't know if I'm being clear here. So because the Rebbe was so radical, I don't know if you could 
appreciate today how radical the Rebbe was in his time. My mother always says that even when the Rebbe became Rebbe, he was called the modern Rebbe. He wore a short jacket. He had been wearing a short jacket, a hat that was more modern. And the Rebbe's way of thinking was out of the box. The normal Jewish way of thinking is very linear. You call a Rav, you do what you're supposed to. Everybody herds together. Everybody does. It's, it's group think. We all do things, whatever our neighbor is doing. And then the Rebbe went and took his chassidim and dispersed them. So there's no group think because there's no even there's no internet back then. There's barely phone calls. So we're literally living on our own. And I would say that talk, we talk about cycle breaking today. This was the beginning of cycle breaking in the from world is sending people out of the, the high walls. The other Jewish Hasidic sects for sure were busy building these ghettos. And the Rebbe was like, no, leave, go out there. So when you're told to go out there and you're told to love everybody and you're told that this is the this is what the moment calls for. We're not negating that Talmud Torah, Kenegad Kulam, that you should study Torah all day. Lubavitcher's wish that they could sit and study Torah all day. But the Rebbe sacrificed us. The Rebbe said, no, 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 no. This is what the world needs now. This is the Ahira This is what the time calls for. You can't afford to sit and study Torah. And I would hear my parents talk about different shluchim. Oh, imagine he could be a Rosh Hashiva today. And instead he's running camp and singing, we want Mashiach now and handing out, you know, licorice. And he should be in the base medrash learning because he's brilliant. This was a, a self-sacrifice on the Rebbe's part. There are a few things you mentioned that I'd like to go into. So number one, you mentioned feeling insecure, which is a totally natural feeling for anyone who comes from a different background to go into any background. So it doesn't necessarily portray Chabad people feeling insecure compared to other Jewish communities. If anything, it may seem like they're insular, just like any other Hasidic sect, Everyone is insular and proud of it. You, you go to this school, you marry these families or within this community, you wear these shaitals and the infrastructure always stayed insular, right? Chabad marries Chabad. At so, 770, preferably, you go on shlichas, like you do stay within the infrastructure and you go to Chabad seminaries. Or am I wrong? No, no, you're right. So that's what's the, the paradox of Chabad is that we are the only Hasidim that don't marry out of our Hasidis, all other Hasidim, if I'm not wrong, marry each other. And they send their boys to the Litvish yeshivas, if I'm not mistaken, happily. We stay insular in our yeshivas and in our marriages. We get married wherever we want. 770 is only if you live in New York. But that's the paradox of it is that's what is insulated about us. But otherwise, we, we don't we don't live together. So how could we even now with social media, things have changed. But once upon a time, you showed up at a, a women's conference and they're just wearing whatever they bought in their local Macy's Dillard's like there's not a, a group speak group think outfits that we bought on 13th Avenue and Borough Park, like unless your mother sent it to you and she lives there, like you might find the Lubavitcher coming from Berkeley and she's going to be wearing that out because that, you know, the te- Tevas, Tevas, you know, because that's what they're wearing in her community. You'll have little Chabad kids that are wearing Target even today because their community members wear Target. You catch me a bar parker or a flappusher wearing Target. Never, maybe today, today in the last 10 years, but like, but they're th- always wearing shade dolls, even if they go swimming in a lake. <laughs> the Lubavitchers? Yes. 
So that is a, I wouldn't say all, I wouldn't say me, that's not me, but the Rebbe did from the beginning of the Rebbe's Nesias, the Rebbe had a few things that he really, really pushed. And if people want to feel connected to the Rebbe and they want to do something for the Rebbe, like on a personal level as a chassid, they will take on these standards. And one of those standards is the Rebbe really wanted the women to wear sheitlach. And men not to shave. Men not to shave is generations old. I mean, that is pre-Europe. That goes back to the 18, 1700s. It's Kabbalistic. It has, there are men in Russia who, who would almost be killed or would be killed, uh, would, would do anything not to shave their beards. Like it was very, I remember always hearing these conversations, like who didn't, who didn't shave in Russia? And, you know, some did have to shave and some didn't. And they, they, they lived underground just not to shave their beard. So that's, but post-World War II, hair covering was very schwach. There were, people didn't have money. There, there were bigger priorities going on. And maybe they were wearing little schmatas on their head, scarves. I see pictures of my grandmother. She definitely wasn't wearing a wig. I don't know if she owned a wig, but she, she had a scarf on her head. Various movements further back closer up. But the Rebbe really wanted to bring dignity, I think, to this mitzvah. And Shetel was, you know, the Rebbe was so, so forward in, in so many areas. And I guess the Rebbe saw that Shetel is the most dignified way for a woman to feel like she's doing this mitzvah. And the Rebbe gave women what is equivalent today to like $4,000 to buy Shetlach for themselves. The Rebbe really wanted mitzvahs to be done with dignity. And I think the Rebbe also wanted us Lubavitchers to feel part of the community, ironically, because, you know, if the from world had already been embracing Shetlach and maybe his Hasidim hadn't picked that up so quickly post-war and he wanted us to be wearing Shetlach. That was a thing to be, and I think it's doing the mitzvah with the most dignity and, you know, beautifully covering ourselves and not feeling less than. Let's talk about working versus learning. We went into this a little bit. I remember speaking to someone who comes from a Chabad background and she was almost shocked by the kolel lifestyle that's imposed and expected and standard. And to her, it sounded like the minority few from how we remember in the old, you know, the blue stories, the blue book. Yes. Tales of Tzadikim. <laughs> Except there are big communities and the status quo, the standard, the expectation is at least you start off your life in Kolo for five years, 10 years, go as long as you can. No one will give you that graduation pass. You have to sort of go through that personal transition on your own that sort of has that I failed the yeshiva system now I have to go work because I have eight kids at home and they all need food and tuition I don't know where that 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 kolel idea of learning forever is definitely a new world order it started on these shores I don't know that that was going on in Europe I don't know that people had the luxury to sit and learn in Lubavitch, there were always going to be people who were mashpias and teachers and educators. So basically, clay kodesh is their life. I have to say personally, who just passed away? Rav, Rav Chaim Kanievsky. Rav Chani, I'm sorry, Rav Chaim Kanievsky. I was so surprised. I mean, it's beautiful. It's it's. I, I heard beautiful stories. I listened to a lot about him. I was very very surprised to learn that he wasn't a teacher. He wasn't a mashpia. He just learned his whole life. Like I, I forgot, I forgot that that exists. So it's not, I mean, even the Rebbe who learned always, but was a Rebbe, you know? So there's, there is no, nowhere in Lubavitch that people just learn. It's not, I don't know if we're the ones who 
left lost that or that just became in vogue in the Lakewood model of post World War II? We need to build up these institutions of sitting and learn. I don't know the history of that. It's not even a thing. It is a thing to go to Kailo for one year. All of my brothers did that. My brothers-in-law, I think most of them, Kolal is a thing, one year of Kailo, and then you get a job. You go in. So the super chsedish and the super devoted to, to the values of chassidism are going to go into shlichas or into chinuch or into tarsa kodesh. And then the ones who are more chilled or have a family business, maybe that there's a reason that they need to be you know, earning bucks and just working in mundane things like real estate or, you know, all those different areas, they will do that. I would say Chabad still probably in the from world probably has a much lower rate of men going to school to, because the Rebbe also was really, really vocal about not getting a degree until after you're married, if even, and ironically, the Rebbe went to school, the Rebbe supported different Bali Chuva to stay in school. Dr. Block was begging the Rebbe to sit in 770 and learn all day. And he was, he had been um, accepted into Harvard as a philosophy major and the Rebbe pushed him to go to Harvard. So the Rebbe, I mean, there was so many paradoxes about how uh, different ways that the Rebbe dealt with different people, different hiras and different answers the Rebbe gave people. So another thing, I think that the Chabad mind has been um, conditioned to think so paradoxically and so openly because of who the Rebbe was. The Rebbe had this hugely broad mindset. Like I said, he was very modern. What's very cool is that there were like the early adopters of the Rebbe's way of being. I have a grandfather who was the Rebbe's age. And as soon as the Rebbe became Rebbe, like he got on board. I, I heard this really nice story recently. So kind of to give you what was so unique about the Rebbe, hence what you see in Lubavitch today, why we are unique. Rebbe Mendel Futterfass was a big chassid who got stuck behind the Iron Curtain when most of the Chabad Jews left. Many beautiful stories about him, but one story I heard is that when he was in the Gulag, he had made this decision that he wasn't going to drink mashke. And you know, in Russia, you drink mashke just to stay warm. So, but he had decided that- We're um, talking about vodka? Vodka, I'm sorry. Okay. He was not going to drink vodka because he decided that he was going to a place that was not going to be very spiritually uplifting and he was going to wait until he can go back to, you know, he would be surrounded by Hasidim, surrounded by his, his peers, and he could take a Lachaim, he could take a shot of vodka in, in service of studying Torah and in service of camaraderie with his own. What if our bringing a Lubavitcher for bringing looks like gathering? So he was losing out because there was not much in the gulags. Now he made friends with a bunch of Jews there who through their friendship, this is again, like in the late fifties or early fifties in the gulags, Soviet union through their speaking and hanging out, he gets them to keep Yom Kippur that year. So they all fast Yom Kippur. These are people, there was, were communist Jews who had been also thrown into the gulags. And after Yom Kippur, they were so excited. They said, come Reb Mendel, let's say L'chaim, let's have some vodka. Let's keep our, you know, let's, and he said no, because he had made this commitment. So when I heard this story, me being a seventh generation Chabadnik, I have, you know, a, a chassid of the Rebbe. I was like, what? but these are his people. Like, of course he could say L'chaim. That's a far bring in. But Remendel was stuck behind the Iron Curtain when he came to America and he met the Rebbe as a Rebbe. 
And he heard the way the Rebbe spoke. He said, I regret so much that I didn't say L'chaim with those people because he didn't understand the level of love he was supposed to have and acceptance. And even he who was part of our system didn't understand that back then. So anyone you're meeting today grew up with this level of acceptance and love and openness that is so not traditionally part of Yiddishkeit. It's very much the Rebbe, like I said, being a cycle breaker and saying like, we don't have to be defensive about our Yiddishkeit. We don't have to build high walls. We can take it out into the world. The world needs this from us today. We we have to be a bright light out there. And if we're just going to keep it for ourselves, A, we're going to kill each other. And B, we, we, we need, we need, to give stuff to the world and we need the world to give back to us. They're like these open, these porous membranes in Chabad. The Bali Chuvas come in, we gain so much from them because they bring their world into our world. And then we take our world and bring it to their world. So when you're meeting a Lubavitcher, you're meeting somebody who has been vastly impacted by the Bali Chuva world. And as an artist myself, and who's somebody who grew up as very traditional Chabad shlichus type of background and upbringing. There are lots of similarities, and I'd like to go into that. So, number one, as an artist, that that's where a lot of my crew and my women are at, or at least that's the the first step where I started meeting other people. And so many of the most talented artists are Bali Chuva because they we're able to spend years and years focused completely exclusively on their art versus from Jewish children have so many different priorities. I want to talk about, and you've mentioned this, the inclusivity and the non-judgmental part, which is absolutely coming out with the feedback we're getting on the LGBT series I've been running now. And when this comes out, it's going to be a while back. The Chabad community is a lot more accepting and non-shocked, I don't know how else to put it, at understanding humans are humans and they come in all forms and that doesn't make you any less Jewish. However, I was speaking to someone in preparation for this interview and she did mention how there's this big split in the Chabad community with are you children, basically how anyone in a mainstream community would say FFB, are you children of Chabad born people? Or are you Balchuva or children of Bali Chuva? And I'd like to segue into that a little bit, talking about the cure of space and children of families who do shlichas. And let, let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. So I just want to clarify, you said you grew up shlichas-like, or you're not, are you from a Chabad family? You're not. I'm not a Chabad no. family, but I grew up in Moscow, Russia. Right. So you grew up in a, in a Shluchus-like situation, in yeah. environment, right? Outside of the high walls of Ephraim community. Yeah. Okay. So um, Where we wore yes. whatever Russian brands that were available. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Not, um, you know, what they were selling at Brenda's. Okay. There is definitely, you know, I showed up in Beis Yaakov as a Lubavitcher. I felt a little bit insecure about who I was because, I mean, I had tons of pride. I wouldn't say that I wouldn't, I, I was looking, you know, I wouldn't have married one of their guys if you paid me, but I just, it was like, it was so frustrating that they didn't understand who my Rebbe was or who I was or where I was coming from. They did their best. I mean, they really did a good job that when we learned about Gedole Yisrael, they had Rebbe Shachat come in and talk about the Rebbe. Like, I had such a great story. Talk about belonging. So 
we used to have these gadolim would come and speak to us or whoever was coming through LA collecting or, or gathering Bahram for their yeshiva. And there were all these people. And I am from that, you know, FFB in Lubavitch, it's called Geja family, at least on one side, or I guess, you know, and, you know, generations back. So I, I feel this certain sense of smugness or whatever that fake, you know, relevance, society, high society (laughs) gives you. And, um, you know, people would tell me about my grandparents. So I'm walking down the halls in my base Yaakov school, and I don't know what possessed my principal to, he's walking with this Rosh Yeshiva and he says, do you know who this is? And he points at me and, you know, the Rosh Yeshiva is being polite. And he says, this is Dina Drizin. And the Rosh Yeshiva goes, she's my cousin. It was like my best basic moment ever. I was like, oh, I finally belong. Anyway, it was a it was a distant relative of Aaron Cutler's daughter married. Anyway, some some distant relative. OK, so there's definitely this. I have to say that growing up and hearing that you're special because you're Geja or whatever may always made me extremely uncomfortable again, because I grew up in a, a shlichus environment. I knew I wasn't better than anybody. I loved the people on my shlichus. They were worthy. They were beautiful people. I never got from my parents that necessarily we were better. Although I think that we are getting better at learning that we can marry each other. In all sides of my family, we have married people that didn't grow up Chabad whether they be Bali Chuva or Sugukumaner, as we call it. Sugukumaner is someone who grew up from, but took on the Minhagim of Chabad. And I think as with everything, we are becoming more open to the world. It goes both ways. So first of all, there was this non-acceptance of, let's say, marrying Bali Chuva, but we were also kinder to the children of Bali Chuva when it came to our school systems, et cetera. I think, I, I think, you know, so if one of our, the Lubavitcher kids did went out of line, everyone freaked out, freaked. But our Chabad house people didn't do everything. And we were all jolly golly. Okay, give them time. It's a process, you know, so on both ends, we didn't always live our values. Let's let's put it that way. We're not perfect. I definitely saw a lack of living values when it came to our own Unzera. And I think that still is a problem today. We're chipping away at it in all communities, but we are learning that there's no two standards. You know, we're all children of Hashem. We all have a process. We all make mistakes. Not some people are better than others just because you were born from. Personally, I don't buy into that. It's just, we got to stick together. Everyone who's Gej, you need to marry Gej. No, I, I really, I don't, I don't buy into that. I think that we could sometimes the trauma is so great. It's, it's better to bring in new blood just from a practical, a practical um, application. Just to add to that, bringing the tastes and the flavors from all around the world, Crown Heights is known to have the best kosher restaurants. And I attribute it to the Chabad community is exposed the most to the most interesting cuisines. And they they bring it home to Brooklyn. <laughs> that's very, very new. I mean, that's like the last 10 years. And before that, the Rebbe didn't really want there to be restaurants in Crown Heights. So you have to know the history. The Rebbe did not want there to be sit-down restaurants in Crown Heights. When I was growing up, we would come to Crown Heights. If you sat down in a restaurant, you were super, super sketch. You picked up your pizza, you went home. There was like, Essen Bench had like a narrow little 
place to eat for the Bahram, who Nebach didn't have where to sit. So that's change. And it's not necessarily something that Lubavitchers, like the old guard is proud of. What could I say? Okay. What else is the Chabad old school not proud of? What is hard? I think what's interesting is that I talked about the early adopters. So I have a Zayda who was the same age as the Rebbe, and he just was an early adopter of everything the Rebbe said and obviously Israel and going out into the world. I have a, found a letter recently, which is so precious to me. I live in Atlanta and my Zayda was actually here in the late 60s traveling and it's a family Babich headquarters is writing to this family. We got regards from Rabbi Avram Drizen, who was who visited you. And I'm like, my Zayda was here. He went to New Orleans. He traveled all over. He met with people. He was really, really open to the Rebbe's way of thinking and the Rebbe's way of viewing the world. And he did not hold on so much so that some of the old in that day, some of the old thinkers would come from Europe, from France, and he would be like, what are you talking about? This is not what our Reb is talking about anymore. Like, this is not what we need to be concerned about. And I don't want to get into the weeds so much, but there was early adopters. So up until Gimel Tamas, we had the Rebbe telling us how to progress and how to be open-minded. And, and again, the Rebbe stuck like glue to halacha, but there's, there's a way to be open-minded, and stay within halacha. There's ways to be a, a broad thinker, have a, it's called in Chassidus, a meichen de godless, to have a big brain and really think of things in a really broad kind of way. But I think what is, what we could be struggling with today is post-Gimel Thomas, is people not having the Rebbe here, you know, Begoof in it as an actual person. We have the letters of the Rebbe, we have talks of the Rebbe, getting very stuck. Maybe I see, this is what I'm seeing, is sometimes the rest of the world is actually moving forward. And some of Lubavitch is actually really stuck because they don't, they forgot that the Rebbe told us to think for ourselves. I'm doing this project called 30 Letters in 30 Days, which is learning 30 letters of the Rebbe up until his 120th birthday. And somebody asks the Rebbe, like, you know, I want to do your work of shlichus, but I, I need, tell me what to do. And the Rebbe's like, tell you what to do. You live across the ocean. You you know what's going on in your community. You tell me what you're going to do. Like, I don't need to tell you what to do. And Rabbi Taub, who was explaining this, he's like, it's a, a kid comes in that mommy says, clean up. And the kid's like, what should I do? Like, you know what? You know what needs to be cleaned up? Look at this room. Start with the Legos, then go to your Barbies. And, the, you know, so the Rebbe was really very much empowering. But I feel like many people forget that in our world from the old guard that we weren't supposed to stop our movement from back then. We have to continue being the vanguard of modern halachic, just dealing with the world as it is. And that's what the Rebbe dealt with, the world as it is, not a world that's supposed to be or should have been. I mean, the world as it is, and then moving towards Mashiach, I don't want to you know, cut that out. Obviously, the world as it is to bring Mashiach and whatever that's going to take. So I think that that's what I'm something I'm noticing is post-Gimel Thomas in the last 20, 30 years, some Lubavitchers having a hard time taking that forward. One of the things we didn't mention, and I'm sure we're not getting to everything, but Chabad also exclusively eats its own hashgacha on meat, on, on fleshiks. Yes. So the model is, ideally, you should be doing shlichus. So go somewhere where there isn't anything. And I'm sure there's a hierarchy of better places, worse places, whatever. You have that in Shiru Lumi also in Israel when 
the young people serve, they, everyone wants to go to America. <laughs> right. But uh, okay. And, and then they're supposed to, they have funding for a year. And then within that year, they have to figure out how they're going to support their own communities. Not necessarily. No. Nope. Mm -hmm. They could go with zero money and have to figure it out from day one. Some younger light while they're in Kolel, they're fundraising. You know, if they have a shlichus, they're fundraising already in New York from family, friends. If a shliach brings somebody out under them, they might give them funding. There's this again, this is part of the Rebbe's vision, which is so revolutionary and different is that the Rebbe didn't set up systems. The Rebbe didn't even take the name Chabad and um, trademark it. There's just no rules. Like, I mean, there's rules, there's the Tyra, but in the Rebbe gave many people answers about how to behave. Obviously we know Derek Haaretz Kadmel Tyra, but the Rebbe did not tell, there's no system. It's very, very democratic the way Shluchas runs. What's the model or the success model for raising kids in the Hefker world where there is no Jewish infrastructure? And what is the rate of success in terms of raising from children? I think that it all it all goes, again, back down to when people would ask the Rebbe for brachas and raising their kids, the Rebbe would say, be joyous, you know, be a, a living example. If shluchim are, it doesn't matter where they're living, Berkeley, California, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Shanghai, China, if they are genuinely, authentically, loving their Yiddishkeit, loving their children, giving them, you know, leading by example, then our dysfunction is equal to your dysfunction across the board. Like whatever, if we're losing kids, it's not because they're on shlichus, it's because there's some other thing going on. And is anyone qualifying families who go on shlichus to make sure that they are <laughs> no adequate no. representatives or they're mentally capable, they you know, self-qualify? It's uh, it, now everybody, there's no virgin territory, so to speak, really right now. There's an office. And I think that maybe let's say, you know, Javi Brooke went to Montana. So that's, she's somebody very young that's recently gone out and her husband's the head shliach of a state. But most of the states have been taken over when the Rebbe was alive. So the Rebbe sent them. But even when the Rebbe sent people, you know, my father said that we landed in San Francisco and it was like, I was like, I landed in the wild west and I was going to do whatever the pioneers did in the wild west. We were just going to make up rules. You know, they, they spoke amongst themselves and they had um, their ideas together as shluchim, but it was, it's, it was very, very much not today. We have like courses and people um, do coaching. You know, my husband does coaching on fundraising. That's something he does on the side to help shluchim because we, even we went out on shluchim in the nineties and we had to struggle so much without tools and it's like ridiculous today to struggle without tools, but it's the Rebbe did not set up the system in that way. And not that the Rebbe set it up just to be a, we call it a chassidish malamalka, like just a mess. The Rebbe was very, the Rebbe told my father before I went on shilchas, respect people's time. Like that was a very, very, like be organized, respect people's time. That was very important to the Rebbe, but there was not a lot of like handholding or rules and regulations. It was again, very much trust-based and mission very oriented. much mission-oriented. And, and the Rebbe really empowered people. I think that's what's so significant about the Rebbe is the empowerment. And we can't forget that today is that we're so empowered even today by the Rebbe and you know, reading the Rebbe's letters, not what the Rebbe said. This is what I'm learning. It's not what the Rebbe said in these thousands of letters. It's how he came to his conclusions. And then we're dealing with people in our communities and we can do the same thing. Jace Taub, 
responded, had a column in Omni magazine for years and people were flabbergasted at how he had such beautiful answers. And he did the same thing he saw the Rebbe do, which was call those answers for people from their own lives, like empower people. You have the answer within you. And the next point is the Rebbe really, really wanted us to have mashpiyim. And I know you wanted to ask me about that is the Rebbe wanted us to have a mirror, right? Like somebody who is, who is there to give us a reality check. And it's different than a rub. A mashpia is somebody who is going to help you be your best self. And the Rebbe was trying to, like Yisrael gave Maisha all this advice on how not to, you don't need, you can't take all this responsibility. You have to allow for the democratization of this organization. And Chabad is very much not, I mean, there is like head offices, but there's no money coming from them. There's programs coming from them, which is wonderful, but often we have to pay for those materials. So I'd like to go a little controversial if, if you allow. Sure. Okay. Chabad is not the only Hasidus that has a Rebbe that's not alive and there's no mm-hmm. replacement. Right. So I'd like to tackle that a little bit as well as the fundamental differences in Hashkafa when it comes to the ultimate goal, as you said previously, bringing Mashiach and a lot of the thinking and Ashkafa is around Mashiach versus many other goals or uh, Hashkafa in other communities, maybe focused on, I know in other Hasidus is getting close to Hashem. Like everything's about getting close to Hashem. Other communities, all about learning Torah. Like the wife's duty and her whole job in life, make sure your husband could sit and learn Torah. Everything's revolved around that. In Chabad, everything's revolved around shlichus and bringing Mashiach and shlichus to bring Mashiach. So let's go into that a little bit and how that may rub other communities their own way or make other communities feel misrepresented when represented to the entire world because Chabad is on the forefront of representing Orthodox Jews very often. That's very interesting. I never actually thought about it that way. I want to really reflect on that, how you can show up somewhere and they're like, oh, I just met Hani from, you know, Austin. And are you guys, you know, and then you're like, no, I have nothing to do with Hani from Austin. I'm not Chabad. I I never even, obviously I didn't put myself in your shoes. That's very interesting. I don't know what you're saying right now. (laughs) Could you you say that again? (laughs) Meaning like you can show up somewhere and they think you're Ashliach, right? And they think you are us. And maybe that a good experience or a bad experience, it doesn't matter, but you're being blanketed with as Shluchim and you're not on Shluchas. You have a different, I, I didn't, I never. No, really I f- meant more like when, when you have anyone on TV or in publications, articles, like mainstream, when you have, by mainstream, right. I mean secular media, secular mm-hmm. TV. When you have somebody Orthodox, and especially if they write Hasidic, you know right away it's Chabad. It's not, not some person from Lakewood giving an interview to, you know, the New York Times. I That's, thought with this whole um, Julia Hart thing, it, we, we were not represented at all there, actually. So as gladly, of a year ago, <laughs> right. Um, I'm glad we I mean, um, anyway, Tyra Banks had a show, you right. know, a reality TV show who she has a Chabad woman on who talks about Nida and how beautiful it is for marriages and everyone. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. And I was like, of course, she's Chabad and she's doing a great job. She got her training from somewhere. I don't think a Lakewood lady would be comfortable enough or know what to say 
or get on TV and, and talk to Tyra Banks. So that's, okay. that's my example. <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. Thank you. So the, the whole mission of Hasidus stating back to the Baal Shem Tov is that Mashiach will come when my wellsprings are spread to the outside. So the Rebbe is like, I'm taking this home. Okay. It's the seventh generation. Kabbalistically, this is, this is time. Now, this is something I wanted to point out. The Rebbe's home that he came from, his father was a Kabbalist. And to the Rebbe's father, the way the Rebbe grew up is that this world, there's no disjointedness in this world. Everything is echad. Everything is part of Hashem's world. And that is what, that's how the, where the Rebbe came from. And that's why the Rebbe was able to say, you can go live there and live there because you are going to connect with the godliness over there. And at the same time, the Rebbe said, Kabbalistically, from the Rebbe's vantage point, from whatever the Rebbe was exposed to his early childhood, it's time. It's time for Mashiach. It's time to Kabbalistically, the reason Hashem created the world was created dir batachtonim to create a dwelling place for Himself in this world. So we can't just dwell in Lakewood, and we can't just dwell in Bnei Brak. We've got to dwell all over the world. There are Jews all over the world. I mean, look at the progression. It all actually makes sense from a anthropological place. Okay. So it's time for Mashiach to come. The Rebbe is that this is the Rebbe's dream. He's, he's pushing this agenda because he, he comes from that. It was his upbringing. It makes sense. Kabbalistically. It makes sense from a, a, a historical perspective. It's not by accident that the same time that, you know, France was asking for Liberté is when the Alter Rebbe brought Hasidus into this world, which has its own, you know, beautiful story of how that came to be. So, there, there's, there's history here. So the Rebbe deciding that it's time for Mashiach to come was, you know, ordained, let's say, or if you believe in that, or, you know, I believe in that. And so that was what the Rebbe was getting excited about. That's what the Rebbe was pushing. And in this very, very kind of revolutionary way. And what can I say? The Rebbe has like these Hasidim who really loved his message connected to him. Nobody is forced to do this. Nobody is compensated for doing this. I don't feel like I have been um, brainwashed into doing this. I feel like I'm somebody who knows how to think for myself. There was a big hurrah with Meshachism and all that. I I can't say I really understood the post-Gimel Thomas after the Rebbe passed away. There was a lot of I, I didn't understand people still holding on to that, you know, that ideal that everything is exactly the same. I, I, I cannot relate to that. I think that ended up being people were worried what would happen to Chabad. And, you know, 20 something years later, we're still here. That has become like a fringe part of Chabad. Does Mashiach still burn in our hearts? Absolutely. Because whatever your people you love, love, you it burns in your heart. It's only creating goodness around me by having that burn in my heart. Because um, if I am looking to connect to people and bring more godliness into the world and bring more achdas, again, like less fragmentation and more unity, that's, I mean, that's how I, that's what I see my job as. And also I think that there's a new buzzword out there called Gula consciousness. So I think the recognition and based on, you know, learning some of the Rebbe stuff, post, you know, this many years later is that there's this evolution in time for Mashiach. And, and I mean, I was listening to Eckhart Tolle and he was talking about things that literally are in Chabad Hasidus, but he came to it. It's a, it's accessible in the world today. My wellsprings have spread to the outside quite literally, you know, this is stuff that was written down 
was actually, according to our tradition, was told, was taught to the Baal Shem Tov. So all Hasidim can claim this by some very holy souls. So this is like very mystical. I think that even from a scientific vantage point, we can understand that we only live on one plane and that's the plane that we see with our two eyes, but there's a lot more going on in this world than we're exposed to, or that we have, that we're privy to. And they do say tzaddikim have that kind of access that we don't have. So the Rebbe was very, very passionate. And as far as Chabad representing the world, I think the Rebbe would have liked you to represent the world. The Rebbe didn't care who represents the world. I think the Rebbe is thrilled that you um, are doing this show and and bringing more love and harmony into the world through talking about the things you're talking about. You're you're part of this. You're part of the plan, girl, whether you like it or not. Well, I connect with a lot of the things the Rebbe said. There is a man versus woman dynamic here, but you said you could marry now. Chabad is so much more open minded. You could marry Bale Chuva Chabad. Or somebody didn't grow up Chabad, but takes on Chabad Menhagim. Now, we, th- that means there's some sort of hashkafic conversion process that has to happen, which I don't think happens within other intermarried sects in Judaism. Of course, unless we're talking about male and female, if you marry a man, you sort of take on their Menhagim, naturally call it whatever you want it, old-fashioned. If a non-Chabad man wanted to marry a Chabad woman, does he have to take on her hashkafa to be able to do it with the blessing of the dead Rebbe? Look, if somebody is getting married to a out of Chabad, they probably, there would be so many different levels. I'm just thinking of a relative of mine who married a clean-shaven Munsi guy, okay? Does he, did they go to the aisle to get engaged? Yes. Does did he put on a long jacket and grow a beard? No. Do they daven at home from a Chabad sitter? The kids do. They all go to Chabad school. Does did he say change his nusach? I don't think so. Does she light? Do her daughters light Shabbos candles? Yes. So maybe a bit of a mix. Do they sing zmiras on Shabbos, which is not something Chabad does? Probably. You know, I, I don't know. I don't think that it's just not done often enough. I don't know if there are rules about it. My grandmother came from a Ger Hasidic home. My grandfather also uh, came from an Ustrafzer on my mother's side, Hasidic home. He at 12 years old, you know, brought himself over to Chabad to learn with the Friedrich Rebbe. And my grandmother got married post-World War II and took on all of my grandfather's minhagim. So, you know, I don't know that there are rules around this because it's not so common. When I said Sugokomener, I meant more like entire families come towards Chabad. And this is what maybe when their kids are younger. I mean, I think that you could pick and choose when it comes to certain Chabad minhagim, because usually a Chabad minhag would be adding in something like candle lighting, like what would be detrimental to light Shabbos candles versus, oh, I'm not, I'm marrying someone not Chabad, so I'm not going to light Shabbos candles. I see that as more of a, you know, the Nusachari is actually known to be a very spiritual sitter. Like, I don't think you're allowed to move from Nusachari if you care about such things. Like, you know, like it has to be that you care about such things because if you buy into, so to speak, you know, what the dis- different Nusachais represent, Nusachari is Kabbalistically the, now I don't know if I'm saying this as Lubavitcher and I've been fed this. I actually think it's, 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 it's accepted that the way it was put together was super, super like Sonic. So would someone stop Davin Nusachari? I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't see us getting as much as paradoxically we're caught up in being Lubavitch. Once you're 
you marrying someone not Lubavitch. I don't know if we have any rules around that. I don't know. Are there any unique challenges you find to be in the Chabad community that they deal with that you don't hear other Jewish communities dealing with? Yeah, I think that the balance of being there outside is is hard. I think that when you grow up in Lakewood and you don't want to expose your children to Disney or to television or English books or anything like that, definitely that's going to be easier for you. And when you live outside and if you want to do that, that is going to be super, super challenging. And it's going to feel much harder for your children because all their friends are watching Disney movies and then they get restricted and some shluchim do that and some shluchim don't. So that would be a really big challenge if that was what you were inclined to do. I think that just the exposure being the only one in your class that keeps Chal Yisrael. My kids go to a Litvish school here in Atlanta and often they'll walk to, you know, Brewster's and my kids keep Chal Yisrael and that, I mean, but, you know, is that, they, they complain about that. The school's usually pretty sensitive and they'll try to like walk over and buy them an ice cream cone. You know, they'll, they'll make accommodations, but it's okay. It is, it, it's, it's not easy to raise your kids in the outside world, especially today. It's, but I think there's something very precious about it because when they are from, they're really, they're not doing it just because it's, you know, the cool thing to do, or they're doing it, you know, hopefully because they really see the value. And my kids are also really, really exposed to a world of not from life. And maybe they see how beautiful our life is, you know, that, that could be the, the flip side of it. I was going to say, I don't think kids in Lakewood are asking for blue tips in their hair. My kids are asking for blue tips. Okay. I had blonde <laughs> tips or okay, something. But, <laughs> but my kids want blue ones, you know? So, and, and my kids want a dog. They desperately want a puppy. I don't think kids in Muncie. But Jibber, everybody in Atlanta have dogs like That's the mainstream saying. Jewish community. But I'm Chabad and we don't have dogs, suppo- oh, supposedly. It's a, it's a Chabad no, thing not to have no, dogs? No, I don't. Whatever. <laughs> I'm just saying it's, it's, I think it's for whatever reason. I'm sure there's a socioeconomic, anthropological, whatever that word is. There's, there's some kind of reason we did not, even though my father had two dogs in Far Chabad, they were guard dogs. So who knows? But I think the world is changing regardless in and all areas of life. Really appreciate this conversation. Yes. I want to just acknowledge not everyone who's Chabad goes out to the middle of nowhere to do shlichas. And that's okay. And it's all about your own inner shlichas, right? It, you could be living wherever you are in Lakewood. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I think, yes, I think that we all have a shlichus. I mean, we're put literally put down in this world with a mission to accomplish. And you don't have to be Lubavitch to have a shlichus. You are, you don't even have to be religious to have a shlichus. The Rebbe said, if you know Aleph, teach Aleph. So we're all doing that in some way for someone. One more thing. The people who become Balei Chuba through the Chabad houses, do they end up staying where they lived? and? they add to the infrastructure or are they expected to move to not expected, but advised to move to Crown Heights where there's more of a community or do they seem to integrate into other communities? So that's very interesting. Most of them, if they're from small towns, it's not a good idea. They don't, they don't usually stay. We've had many people who've passed through who have taken on more Yiddishkeit and have moved on. I think some shluchim get very, this is again, human 
human humans have human emotions, they get insulted when they've had a, a family that's been in their community and then they move off to a different community that's not Chabad. It's very, I, personally, I don't understand that insult, but I, I see it often. It's, it's hard for people to remember, like you don't own people or you didn't make them. Like I, I would never say I made a Baal It's very triggering to me to hear that, but people use those, that kind of language because we all, you know, we all make, you know, whatever we're people. So I think most of most Bali Chuva move to a bigger community where it's more conducive. And then maybe certain, there are certain Lubavitch communities that all sprang up from just really successful shlichas. Like, you know, I know Paris has that kind of shlichas and maybe even one could say California, although there was enough shlichim there, Florida, these are a lot of, a lot of Bali Chuva are in these communities, but there was also an infrastructure of Lubavitcher. It was conducive to that. Yeah. Any closing remarks? I think I, it's super cool that you wanted to have this conversation. I hope I've enlightened people. Again, I'm just speaking for myself. And I, I would say that even going on Shluchas is the minority of Lubavitchers today in a certain sense, because there's not that many places to go to in the old, the old fashioned way of going on Shluchas. Like my, my father discussed being a, um, a pioneer in the wild West. And now people are going to more established communities. Mostly there are some still going to islands off wherever, and um, we should just all be, you know, know what our shlichus is. It should be clear because that's, you know, what, what do we want from life, but clarity and the strength and fortitude and health. Thank you so much, Dina, for coming on to this podcast. Thank if you. anyone wants to add to the conversation, please join the WhatsApp group and maybe we'll have some follow-up episodes as well. Thanks for sticking around until the end. I hope you check out some other episodes on this podcast. And if you're thinking of launching a podcast, please do reach out. I'm very excited to announce that I'm working on my first course for podcast launching. So you do not have to work with me one-on-one to get started and get set up right away. You will be able to do this on your own, on your own time. I'm also excited to share with you that I'm working on so much new music and so many new exciting episodes. I love hearing from you and getting your suggestions for topics and future episodes. So please do keep reaching out. And if you'd like to sponsor an episode, We'd love to have you feature your business and your services here. I have not decided yet what's coming out next week, but stay tuned. Perhaps join the WhatsApp group. See you next time. Mm -hmm.